Father, thank you for this church, for everybody who's working this weekend. Thank you that they are working on a long weekend to serve the community in so many different ways. For those of us who have the long weekend off, thank you for a time to rest, to spend time with friends, family, get chores done around the house. God, as we think about community, may we be engaged more and more with what you are doing here at Ellerslie, in our communities and around the world through the passage that we're looking at today. God, I pray that my words would fall down so that your words would be lifted up and that we would be drawn closer to you, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to every one of us in the way we need to hear from you this morning. Pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen. On this Labor Day weekend, I'd like to break down some misconceptions about work. One of my least favorite summer jobs was being a carpet cleaner. I hated this job. On average, we'd have to haul around about 100 feet of hose, about 100 feet of uh, hose that was really smoking hot because it would pump out the steam, another 100 feet of hose that was about five inches in diameter because it sucked up all the stuff that's in our homes. And it was a job that I really didn't like. When we were cleaning somebody's house, we'd have to make really, uh, be really careful that we didn't knock any walls, that we would move all the furniture, that everything would be just the way it was when we arrived. When we would work at a condo building, you'd have to go over the balconies, and it was just a huge amount of work. In office buildings, you'd be hauling about 200 feet of hose. Nobody liked that you were there. It was just agonizing. And then there was overtime. You were done your nine, 10 hour day and you'd get this call that somebody's basement flooded and then there was a sewage backup and you'd have to go in and believe me, that water was not clean. I hated that job. The next summer I went back and I absolutely loved it. So what happens? It all started in the garden. The fall of humanity takes place in Genesis chapter three but look at what we read in uh, chapter two right before that. The Lord God took the man put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. From the second chapter of Scripture to the very last chapter of Scripture in Revelation 22, no longer, says God, will there be any curse. The throne of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants, that's us, will serve him. Isaiah, writing to a group of people in exile, says this in chapter 65, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Four verses later, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. There's work in the very beginning before work is cursed. There's work in the very end after the curse has been removed from this world. The challenge that all of us in this room face today is that work is currently cursed. We read in Genesis chapter three, you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, says God, that you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. There are going to be days that are really, really hard. But the scriptures do something absolutely astonishing. And they say, live as you will become. The kingdom of God is already here and we're to be a part of it, that everything we do is for the glory of God. This might not be an exhaustive list, but look at how our work does great things for God and the community around us. We're called to make things beautiful. For engineers, for interior designers, for architects, for cleaning service, for contractors, and so much more, your role is working with God and the people around you to make things beautiful. Summer number one of carpet cleaning, work as many hours as possible so I would go into as little debt as possible when I went back to school. Summer number two of carpet cleaning, 
I want to come into your home, to your business, to your condo, and make it spotless. Changed everything. Fix what is broken. For our doctors and medical professionals, for mechanics, to repair technicians, you are working with God to restore our world, to restore our home, to restore our toys to the way they were originally intended to work. Bring order and authority for managers, for supervisors, for referees, for administrators, for IT directors, when systems are broken, when people aren't working for their full potential, when athletes aren't following the laws of the game, you are there to bring God's order and authority to the workplace. And finally, we promote human flourishing for therapists, for politicians, for entrepreneurs, for designers, for teachers, parents, you could have been on this list at least three times. The reason you're doing what you're doing is to make this world a better place and to bring the kingdom of God into a more and more stark reality for the people around us. We work for God, but we also work for a courageous community. It's not just what we do here. It's we live as we will become. The idea that the gospel focus impacts every aspect of our lives. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to open them up to Colossians chapter three. If you're brand new to church and you don't have a Bible with you, you can download an app at bible.com app. For everybody else, you can grab a Bible in front of you or on your devices. Big numbers are the chapter numbers. Small numbers are the verse numbers. Here's what's happening in Colossians chapter three. The Apostle Paul, the author of the letter, is writing to the church in Colossae, and they're confused. They're saying, Paul, we don't know what to do. The culture around us is expecting us to be exactly like them. They just figure the Christian God is just one more God in the Greek pantheon, and we may as well do exactly what they're doing. So we're confused. Do we work with culture, or do we do this thing where we completely ignore the culture, and we get a little bit legalistic, and we get into our little Christian huddles, and we just completely walk away from everything that's taking place? This is what's taking place in Colossians chapter two and then we get to Colossians three and he says something interesting. There's a third option here. Live in light of the resurrection. As followers of Jesus, live now for all of eternity. Live as you will become. For the note takers in the room as we begin our passage together, it starts with this idea of radical change. This is Colossians three, one to four. Since then, You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I have a handful of people who regularly give me feedback on my sermons. What's working well? What do I need to improve on? What are some blind spots I might not be aware of? And one of these friends of mine is an expert storyteller. And we talk about uh, how I can engage people more effectively. And he says, Dave, we got to work on your storytelling. And this man is a gifted storyteller. When you sit down with him, he just draws you in. It's beautiful. And on more than one occasion, we've gone out for lunch together, and we've talked about when we preach, when we teach, when we engage with people on a regular basis, do we do so through the head, or do we do so through the heart? If you look again at the first couple of verses of Colossians chapter 3, you'll see what the Apostle Paul lays out there. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, not on earthly, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He also says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. 
It's interesting because we so often go for the mind, right? There's this idea that we want to get across and we give you information and we give you statistics and we want you to just absorb what's taking place. And that can absolutely work. But the Apostle Paul says it needs to also capture your heart as well as transform your mind. Let me give you an example. It wouldn't be unusual for me to say something like this. Since Jesus has committed his life to you, you need to commit your life to Jesus. Maybe that would be the opening line of a message, and for the next 30 minutes, I'd unpack what does that look like, how is it going to come together, how do I fall in line with that? But for the most part, I'll preach for 30 minutes, and then at the end, I'll come after your head, and I'll say, now, since Jesus has done this, how are we going to respond? I could even use an interesting stat to hopefully pursue you a little bit more and say something like this. Did you know that 64% of 18 to 29-year-olds leave the church after attending as a, as a teen? And you might go, well, that's interesting, but I'm not sure if I'm still quite grabbed. I recently went out for coffee with a new friend of mine. He's a, a medical doctor. And we were talking about God, and we were talking about faith, and he's not there yet. But the more I spoke with him, the more I realized this man uh, didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I I'm pretty sure he believes. And so I said to him, new friend, I, I use that, new friend, um, what, what, are, what don't you quite believe? And he goes, I believe all of it. I said, do you believe that the scripture is God's word? And he goes, I do believe that. Do you believe that Jesus is God's only son? I absolutely believe that. Do you believe Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose for your sins? And he goes, I believe that. And I said, do you, do you want to accept Jesus as, as your savior? And he said, no. And I said, how come you already believe it? And he goes, yeah, but so what? So What? This past week, I was listening to a testimony of a woman from the States, and she grasped this so what incredibly beautifully. She has a story that many of us have heard over and over before, and she was uh, incredibly absorbed with men. And occasionally, she would move in with other men, and that man would uh, expect certain things in the evening, and if things got violent because he had too much to drink, that was just part of living with him. It was an expectation. Or you flip it, the scene around a little bit and a man would move in to her place and she would work hard and she would buy the groceries and she would cook and he would just be present. But a man was in the house, so it was all okay. One of her friends brought her to church and she was absolutely captured by Jesus. And she realized there's this man who looks nothing like the men I've dated in the past, nothing like the man I'm living with now. He is different he gave his life for me, not the other way around. He loves me. He came on a rescue mission for me, and her heart was completely captured. But she said, the small rural church didn't quite know what to do with me, and that's incredibly humble of the pastors. And they said, why don't you go to see a counselor, to see a therapist? We'll pick up the tab. And so this woman went and talked to a counselor, and the counselor was excellent at her job. The counselor helped this lady to realize that the main idol in your heart, the main thing you're following is, will a man love me? Will a man care for me? Will a man, take care, uh, will a man protect me? And she said, that's it. That's absolutely right. And then the counselor said something really interesting. She said, well, now we have to replace that idol with something else. Will you go get a job? Will you go back to school? Will you start serving in some way, shape, or form at the church that you're at? And this woman, absolutely brilliant, recognized that's not right. 
And so for this particular therapist, she was able to figure out what was wrong and what was hindering this woman, but she wasn't able to help her take that next step. And this lady understood it in her heart that you can't just remove an idol and replace it with something else. That idol has to be replaced by Jesus. Because having an idol doesn't mean we worship something bad or evil. It may just mean taking something good and making it ultimate. Take another look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. See, idols can't be fully removed. Idols can only be replaced because that hole is going to be filled by something. That's why you so often see somebody stop smoking, but then they start drinking eight cups of coffee a day. But when Christ captures our heart, when he transforms our mind, then he becomes central to the very core of who we are, and radical change takes place. The Apostle Paul continues in verses 5 through 8. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Radical change means we look different, we speak different, we act different. And the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, he's not just saying this. This man literally killed Christians and then ends up writing most of our New Testament. You see, some of us have these beautiful stories of radical, instant transformation. One of the elders at the previous church I worked at would tell the story regularly that he was watching church on Sunday morning. Uh, a preacher came on, he fell down in tears, committed himself to Jesus, and said, from that moment, I stopped swearing. I spoke with somebody over this uh, past summer, and we were talking about the issue of pornography, and he said, Dave, the moment I gave my life to Christ, my, the desire for pornography went away. Now, many of us would love this to be the story in our own lives, but it's not. It's this constant, radical direction moving in the same way. If you take another look at the first three words of verse five, it says, to put to death. It means to take an extreme measure to conquer, or to overcome. It sounds like a battle to me. We need to take decisive actions if this is going to change our lives. September is a time in which there's new beginnings, right? Our kids are going back to school. The ministry year starts up. We kind of come back from holidays and get into the regular routine of work. We have one particular ministry at our church called Freedom Session. And Freedom Session is a 30-week intensive uh, discipleship course that talks about healing and opportunities. I was part of the graduation uh, last May. I simply prayed, but then I watched, and I would hear story after story after story about people talking about radical life change. They're habitual liars, and then they stop. Husband and wife come together and says, Freedom Session has transformed our marriage. You have to be in control of everything, and Freedom Session says you can let go. God is in control of everything. If you're interested in this and you think, you know, I need to take that next step, Carol oversees Freedom Session at our church, and you can email her. I know she would love to speak with you. This also serves as that segue from individual to community. You're the only one who can decide, I'm going to commit my life to Jesus. I want to see radical change in my own life. I want people around me to see the radical change so I can give the glory and the praise to Jesus for what's happening. 
And you notice that in verses five to eight, there's actually two lists of sins. The first list is almost entirely individual. It's impurity. It's lust. We're looking at something we want. It's greed. We just want more for ourselves. Evil desires, like we mentioned just a moment ago, where it takes something good in our lives, but it makes it ultimate. But then in verse eight, it changes up. Paul writes about anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from our lips, all have bearing in our social relationships. And if God captures our hearts, if he transforms our minds, radical change will happen and it will impact our communities, whether at school, at work, at home, at play, wherever it might find you. Paul continues in verses 9 to 11, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The Apostle Paul is an educated man and he knows exactly what he's doing here. He knows that he's talking about slaves and masters and can you imagine them worshiping in the same church together? He knows the barbarians who live in northern Greece and the intellectuals from Athens. And he says, when you come to church, you are living and doing church together. And if we're going to live together for all of eternity, then that courageous community starts right now. Live today as you will become. This is such a radical change from the, um, from the first century ethos that it's hard to wrap our minds around. It would be like a Jew saying to a Nazi, you should come to synagogue with me, and the Nazi going, yeah, sounds like a good time. But I believe it's absolutely possible, and I believe that because I've seen it. In my previous church, there was a man who ran a business and one day, uh, I was, uh, our old church had 60 people on average, so if somebody new came, it was easy to meet them and introduce yourself. And I said, hey, what brings you to church? There were three guys, all you could tell were um, used to working outside and working hard, and they said to me, oh, we all work for Dan. And if Dan's way of treating us is normal for all Christians, then we want to come to the church that Dan comes to because it's a totally different way of living where the life-changing work of Jesus so captures our hearts, transforms our minds, that radical change impacts our community, that's what courageous community looks like. That's what the gospel looks like. From radical change, we move to new life. This is verses 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. There's an expectation from the Apostle Paul that because of this radical change, we are going to enter into new life. And I love these five attributes and how they all work together. This idea of compassion describes the seat of our emotions. And think about what the Christian church has done around the world. We've opened schools. We've opened hospitals. We provide people with clean water. 
We provide places for women to come and receive the help and the healing they need. We give places and opportunities for men to come and get over their drug and alcohol addictions. We give places for kids to come who don't have parents and the Christian church is showing compassion all around the world. Kindness, Archbishop Trench, who played a key role in developing the Oxford English Dictionary, said, it's a lovely word for a lovely quality. It was used to describe wine which had grown mellow with age and lost its harshness. Humility is a word Greeks refused to accept for themselves. They would actually point at others and make fun of them, calling them a humble person. And Christians said, we'll embrace that word. We'll embrace it, embrace it to such an extent that the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter two talks about the humility of Christ. And gentleness is another great word. And I love what uh, one commentator said. It's a willingness to suffer insult or injury rather than inflicting hurts on others. I've also heard it described as strength under control. Patience can also be translated as long-suffering. It's the opposite of anger, resentment, and revenge, but rather it endures difficult circumstances because there's a hope of coming relief. What's fascinating and beautiful about all five of these characteristics is that they can only be seen when you're living in community together. Who cares about your gift if nobody is watching? I remember watching a superhero movie a number of years ago, and the guy's uh, superpower was turning invisible, but only when nobody was watching. It's useless. Colossians 3 is special for me because it's the first chapter I ever memorized. And I remember living in the Okanagan Valley and walking uh, around the place where I lived, thinking about what the Apostle Paul is saying here in chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and self-control. Bear with each other and bear with each other? And I thought, well, wait a second. That means I don't actually have to like everybody at church? This was revolutionary for me. It just means we don't have to be best friends. Now, please understand, I'm not saying be rude. I'm not saying hurt other people's feelings. I'm not saying to avoid them in the grocery store. But it just means you don't have to be best friends with everyone. There's an old story where a man was, um, when smoking was still allowed on planes, and this man um, lit up a cigar, and this uh, flight attendant came up to him and said, I'm sorry, sir, but uh, if you smoke, the person beside you has to be okay with it. And there was a woman there, and she was not impressed. So the flight attendant said, you know, I'm going to um, find another place for you to smoke. And she eventually found one. He moved to another seat. And the flight attendant came back to this woman. And she said, I'm really sorry for the inconvenience I just caused. And the lady said, that's OK. I've been living with him for 30 years. And it still bothers me. <laughs> it's not an issue of sin. It just rubs you the wrong way. And while we may not want to hear it, when someone rubs us the wrong way, it might be more about us than it is about them. When I was in college, one of my roommates had a cousin who would come over pretty regularly, and I couldn't stand him. I couldn't really put my finger on it for the longest time, and then I eventually figured it out, and a different roommate pulled me aside, and he said, why don't you like our friend? And I said, because he's too much like me. How do you handle that guy all the time? Friends, all week I was thinking about the similarities between this passage and last week. And last week we said it starts with a personal commitment. 
There's this personal commitment to love Jesus, to be a sincere, genuine, and true love towards others. And then there's a family commitment to treat everyone like brothers and sisters, like sons and daughters. And all of us have family members that are a little bit difficult. We might have a child that takes a little bit more effort than the other kids. We might have a sister-in-law who we think, okay, we're going to this family reunion, I need to prepare myself. An uncle that takes a little bit more work, but their family. It's a choice that we make that we are going to love them, we are going to embrace them, we are going to care for them because that's who God has placed around us. But then look what he says next in verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. And it's as though Paul is saying, in case you didn't hear what I just said, I'm gonna say it again. Forgive one another as the Lord forgives you. Forgiveness is this defining mark of new life. And when Christians forgive one another, we aren't promising to never remember what was occurred. This idea of forgive and forget is completely unbiblical. Rather, we are promising not to bring up the issue again in the future because you've been forgiven. The author of Colossians also wrote to the church in Rome and he says in chapter eight, verse one, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Later on, he talks about if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you follow him, if you give your whole life to him, then Jesus forgives you for your sins. It's beautiful. But Jesus himself reminds us, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. He doesn't forget what we've done. He just forgives us for what we've done. And it moves us towards that bearing with one another to forgiving one another. Forgiving one another and admonishing one another. Being a part of courageous community means we love one another to so much that we are willing to kindly point out someone's issue in their own life that they may not be aware of. There's a radical, yes, there's a radical change. Yes, there's a new life. But sometimes we also need that fresh perspective. This is verses 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's a beautiful ending to the passage, isn't it? Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. The room that we're sitting in right now, is it an auditorium or is it a sanctuary? Can't it be both? It's a large room with a lot of seating. But I hope whatever our conversation is, whatever the teaching is this morning, we recognize there is an incredible peace of Christ that is present here. About a year ago when I was taking a class for school, we were given a list of about 75 attributes and it said, go back to your team that you work with and talk with the, your team about the five attributes that stand out the most. But before you do that, give the slip of paper to each person and see what they circle as their top five. So I brought this to Pastor Mel at the time and, and Russ as well, and the three of us went through it, circled the five that we most um, thought re, uh, represented our church well. And I don't remember exactly what everybody circled, don't even remember what I circled, but all three of us put down, are they teachable? Is there a teachability right here? 
where if we come to one another, where if we love one another, or if we point something out in one another's lives, that we go, yeah, I think that makes sense. Friends, this is what courageous community looks like. And I think if we're being really honest with one another, we have to say, what needs to change in our church? Where do we look at each other, not maybe as just individuals, but today on a Sunday morning and say, what are the changes that need to take place? And friends, as much as work that goes in on Sunday mornings to prepare the music and to prepare the slides and all the tech work and what's happening with our kids upstairs, there, there is a reminder that this is only for an hour a week. And so for those of you who are around my age, I'm 40, so I'm gonna take the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. Are we engaging in community? Are we actually a part of one another's lives in a way that is truly life-transforming? where we'll see radical change take place, where we'll see new life take place, and where we get fresh perspectives from other people. Because it's really easy to show up on Sunday mornings, especially at 11.15, you still pretty much get to sleep in. And you can still grab brunch afterwards, and you still have the rest of your Sunday, but during the rest of the week, are you engaged in community? Friends, we are too busy. There is too much going on in our lives, myself included. Are we taking time for that which is most important in recognizing I have to be engaged in Christian community? I need to be a part of Ladies Morning Out that Kim talked about earlier. I want to be part of Freedom Session. I want to be a part of a men's group or a women's group or something with my spouse. Are you going to take that plunge? Because Sunday mornings, as great as they are, is not enough. And you might say, Dave, I work shift work, Dave, I don't know when my, um, what's going to happen next, or I'm up north, or whatever the case might be. I totally get it. We're really leaning into triads at this time. And I've met with people Tuesday mornings at 6.30, I've met with people Wednesday mornings at 6, and I've met with people Thursday nights at 8.30 or 9 at night after the kids go to bed. Do we want to be engaged in courageous community? For the young adults in the 20-somethings, I want to speak to you too. I know COVID has been tough. I know you're looking for relationships. I totally get it. Are you engaged with community when you bring your significant other around? Or are you dating somebody completely in seclusion, just the two of you, because this is how we date? Newsflash, only in the last 70 years. The millennia before that, that was out of the question. And the person you end up marrying is probably the second most important decision of your life behind whether or not you're going to follow Jesus. And if we really want to be engaged in courageous community, if we really want people to speak into our lives, we got to bring our significant others around. Friends, I know this is possible. And if you have your communion, I invite you to open that, the cup and the bread up now. And I know this is possible because 2,000 years ago, a man believed it was possible. And he grabbed a couple fishermen, some blue-collar workers, and he says, put your nets behind, leave your boats, leave your father's business, and follow me. Blue-collar workers, I want to make you fishers of men. And then he went to a couple white-collar workers, a tax collector, and he said, will you also follow me? Will you leave this extremely lucrative place, and will you interact with people who are radically different than you, people who don't actually like you very much? And will you engage in courageous community? 
Will you engage in radical life change? Do you believe me that I have something better to offer you, that I'm going to offer you new life, that I'm going to give you a brand new, fresh perspective, and that something greater is available to you? Live as you will become. And friends, 2,000 years ago, a group of 12 people completely changed the world. White collar, blue collar teenagers went out and transformed the world. Not just 12 people, not just 72, not just 120 in Jerusalem or 3,000 shortly after that, but nearly every nation, every people group, every language group because of 12 radical teenagers led by an incredibly awesome God who said, do you want to see what community looks like? Do you want to see what life change looks like? Do you want a fresh perspective and the beauty of what courageous community can mean for your life? Follow me. And then he walked up onto a hill. He allowed himself to be tied and then nailed to a cross. And he shed his blood so that we might have life. He broke his body so that our body might be made whole. And he says, this is what courageous community looks like. Will you join me and change the world? Let's take together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as I pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Colossians chapter 3. Thank you for an invitation to a radical change of life. Thank you that you are the one who gives us new life. And thank you that you give us fresh perspective. God, forgive us for we have put other people in the center of our hearts and minds rather than you. And God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the immensity of your love, that we would be transformed in heart and mind to see how great and awesome and beautiful and powerful and holy and loving you are that we would be a courageous community that goes out and changes the world to bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.